Matthew 26, beginning with verse 30. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit who has revealed this word to us, God's word, the Bible, which is without error in the whole and in the part. We can trust this book because it comes from you, and you are truth itself. And we ask that you will open our hearts, give to us the ability to meditate deeply upon what it means that our Savior wept and prayed in Gethsemane. And may we have within our hearts as believers in Jesus permanent transformation, growth in grace, and conformity to the image of your Son, having considered this text. And may those among us who know not Christ at all be enabled by your Holy Spirit, effectually, powerfully, sweetly, to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, beginning with verse 30. This is the word of the Lord. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all his disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, Unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
If you and I are to be saved from our sins, there is only one way that it is possible. God himself must assume human nature and pay the penalty of our sin. And this he has done. Jesus Christ, God's own Son, the second person of the Trinity, is fully God and fully man. He is fully man without sin. He has obeyed the law. He has paid the price on the cross. But human nature is weak. And we see in a special way the true humanity of our Lord Jesus in this text. This text leads us to consider what it costs the Lord to make sinners his children. Sometimes I hear Christians that go through deep trials say, that was my Gethsemane. And every time I hear it, I cringe. You will never go through Gethsemane. Only one has gone through Gethsemane. And in this text, we see Jesus' perspective on the atonement that he came to accomplish, so often mentioned in Matthew's Gospel. Taking all the Gospel accounts of Gethsemane into view, Jesus prays three times that the cup might pass, and he will go to the cross alone. I want you to see three things. First, the emotional cost. The emotional cost of what our Savior has done for us. Gethsemane means oil press, but Jesus himself is being put into the press of the wrath of Almighty God. Matthew might intend for us to see significance in the fact that Jesus prays in a garden. In the garden, Adam said, My will, not yours. But in this garden, Jesus, our last Adam, says, Your will not mine. Jesus exhorts his disciples to pray and took Peter, James, and John with him, and there the Lord Jesus begins his agonizing prayer before his Father. Is this not the fact that we must note? The utter agony of Jesus' prayer before his Father. The emotional stress of the Lord is almost indescribable in this text. In verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The first verb is from lupeo. It means pain. It means grief. The second verb is from admoneo. It means extreme mental distress. In verse 38, we find the word perilupos that essentially means grief upon grief. Our focus is on Matthew, but let me add that in Luke 22, verse 44, we are told that Jesus was in agony in the garden. In Mark 14, 33, that he was very distressed. Cranfield says in his little book on Mark, being in the grip of a shuddering horror in the face of the dreadful prospect before him. The horror faced by the Savior was unbounded. Luke tells us that an angel was sent to strengthen him and that his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Calvin beautifully says, such deadly sweat could only have flowed from a dire and unusual horror. Indeed, as we read these accounts, we find that his entire body shows the bottomless distress of his soul before his father. And so we ask the question, why? Why this agony? Why this grief? Why this pain? Why this suffering in Gethsemane? And our minds might first go to the physical sufferings of Christ. 
He is about to go through his trials. He will be flogged. He will be beaten with a cat of nine tails. He will be hung upon a cross. And the physical suffering that he endures indeed is profound. William Temple said Jesus' wounds are his credentials to the suffering race of human beings. Are you suffering? Does God seem distant from you? God's own son suffered. Yet he would rise from the dead. And believer, so will you. No, without in any way minimizing the physical sufferings of the Savior, we do not find the answer to the question, why in his physical sufferings? I think we find them in two facts. First, Jesus knew that his feeling of overwhelmedness that he knows in Gethsemane will only intensify as he goes to the cross. In verses 39 and 42, when he prays, he prays, My Father, which is very significant. In drinking the cup, Jesus lost his sense of intimacy with the Father. He was forsaken that you who now believe in him would never be forsaken. And then the second answer to the question, why he suffers so in Gethsemane, oh, this is the most profound of all. The reason he suffers... The reason he is overwhelmed is because he is holy. Because we sinners are indeed estranged from God by nature, we can scarcely know what it means when we say that Jesus is holy. We see in Gethsemane the revulsion of his soul from sin as he ponders what it will mean to bear that sin upon the cross. For that is what the cross is all about. Sin-bearing, substitution, taking the place of sinners like you and me. He is now in Gethsemane entering the vestibule of full exposure to the wrath of Almighty God. And so in verse 31, when Jesus says to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, and now he quotes Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The sword of justice comes down at Jehovah's command, at his Father's command. Let me put it another way. Think of it like this. When we look to God through faith in Christ, what do we find? When you look to God through faith in Christ, you find a gracious God. When you turn to him with faith in Christ, you find and always will find a gracious God. But God the Son, bearing God's wrath, will see no gracious God. God the Son saw no gracious God toward him. His death satisfies God's wrath toward us. But only because to him the wrath was poured out in full as he was a substitute on the cross for us, only because of that do we know a gracious God. We are covered from wrath because for him there was no covering from wrath. He was abandoned. He was cursed. That is what God thought of his son on the cross. And that is why Gethsemane, that is why it is such a painful, painful trial. That is why his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Christ on the cross, the holy son of God, who abhors all sin, when he hangs upon a cross, will be sin in the Father's sight because he sees his Son bearing your sin and mine. 
Now, that's the emotional cost of what he did for us. Secondly, I want you to see with me the cost of sacrifice. The cost of sacrifice. Jesus prays for the cup to pass, verse 39, verse 42, and there are differing views on this. There are those who say he's just praying for the depression of Gethsemane to pass. There are those who say that he is praying that uh, premature death that might happen in Gethsemane might not happen. Uh, Others who have said that his suffering not be prolonged for eternity, that that's what Gethsemane is all about. No, no, none of those, none of those. No, no, he is praying in all of the agony of his soul about the cross that he will endure. Do not misunderstand the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. All along, it is a prayer of trust. But he faces the cross, and it is abhorrent to him that his holy body and soul will bear the sins of his people. He feels the cost of the sacrifice, the cost of being the sinless substitute, bearing the sins of sinners. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What does the cup mean? Well, the cup is Old Testament language for the pouring out of the wrath of God. You see it in many, many places. Let me give you a few examples. You might want to turn to them. The 75th Psalm, verses 7 and 8. In Psalm 75, 7, 8, we read, It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, that's Jehovah, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Or to take another example, in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 51, we read in verse 22, Thus says Your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down, that we may pass over. Or to take another example, in Jeremiah chapter 25, That passage that Elder Campbell read to us earlier. Now let me explain to you this text in Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah had been preaching for 20 years. Now the year is 604 B.C. and momentous events have taken place. Assyria is falling apart. The Battle of Carchemish has taken place. And what that means in essence is there is no one to stop the invader Nebuchadnezzar. This is when Daniel is taken into captivity. Jeremiah then passes the cup as the prophet of the Lord representatively. God says to him in Jeremiah 25, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So imagine the prophet. There he is prophesying and preaching. He takes the cup and he says, Here, you drink the cup of God's wrath. You be Edom. Here, you be Ammon, you drink the cup. Here, you be the nations of the north, you drink the cup. You drink the cup, you drink it, you drink it, you drink it. 
you be Judah. You be Jerusalem. You drink the cup down to its bitter dregs. And I ask you, would you have taken the cup from the hand of the prophet Jeremiah? Would you have drunk that cup? No, you would not. Because you know it is the cup of God's awesome and fiery wrath against sin. Jonathan Edwards, in preaching on this text from Luke's Gospel, says this. In Gethsemane, Jesus then had a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. For what was the human nature of Christ to such a mighty wrath as this? It was in itself without the supports of God, but a feeble worm of dust. Jesus then prays in all of the fullness of the recognition that he will be the sin bearer of his people and in his own sinlessness, but in his real humanity. And he is overwhelmed with the thought of the wrath of God and what it means to bear it. And so the cup is an awful image. And let me tell you why it's awful. Yes, it's awful because Jesus is holy. But it's also awful because in that passage in Psalm 75, we are told the wicked drink it. That's why it's awful. The cup of God's wrath is for the wicked. And yet the sinless Son of God will drink down the cup to its bitter dregs. Schilder, the Dutch theologian, said, one would need to have been in hell for some time in order to understand what it is that is tearing Jesus apart in the garden. Third thing. The costly drinking of the costly cup, what it means for you. And I'm going to tell you, Seven things. What does it mean? But now remember this prayer was a prayer of resignation. Not my will, yours be done. His holy soul could not but shrink from the wrath of God. But his holy soul could not help but to submit to the wrath of God. Conclusion? The cross was unavoidable if we were to be saved. The cross was unavoidable if the Father was to be obeyed. The cross was unavoidable if God was to be glorified. So what does this mean? First, it means this. How awful sin must be. Two, how awful the wrath of God must be that it requires the sinless and holy Son of God to bear it so that I might not. 
You see, that's why it requires that the second person of the Trinity become flesh. His infinite nature must give to his finite sufferings infinite value. So that he pays the price for those of us who have sinned against him, deserving his infinite displeasure. You know, Edwards Edwards says, and he actually uses the word stupid, he does. He points out how stupid and sottish are senseless sinners who turn from the warning of the wrath of God and from the proclamation of Christ as our only hope. Sinners in hell will experience the wrath of God, Edward says, differently than did Jesus. Yes, he bore the wrath of God in ways that we cannot imagine as the Holy Son of God, but sinners will bear it differently. Jesus did not feel the gnawing of a guilty conscience, but the wicked will eternally who do not trust in Christ. Jesus felt no torment of inward lust and corruption, but the wicked will never get away from it. God never hated him, but the scriptures are plain that he hates the wicked. God, Christ, did not suffer despair, but the wicked will despair forever. Christ's sufferings were infinitely worthy to pay the price as if for eternity, but Jesus did not suffer for eternity. If you could but sense the danger you were in who have not trusted Christ, Edward said you would fall in bloody sweat and cry out in amazement. And only the Holy Spirit can open the heart to see that. Third thing it means for you. How dreadful were Christ's sufferings. This is not a martyr's death. He had full revulsion toward sin, and yet he bears it. Which means, fourthly, how great is the love of Christ toward sinners that he would take down the wrath of God in gulps, bearing the fierceness of the wrath of God for the love that he had for us in view of sin and its stark rebellion and even knowing his own disciples will forsake him in ingratitude and fear. Yet he loved. Which means, five, How willing is Christ to receive sinners? How willing he shows himself to receive. Here is the assurance that the Lord receives every sinner who comes to him by faith. Is that you? He will receive every sinner who comes to him by faith. Does not Gethsemane show this? Does not the cross demonstrate this? The sixth thing, Christ's obedience to the Father is utterly amazing. It is through his obedience to the law and his paying the price that we are saved. Lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I come to do thy will, O God. That's what Jesus says. This is the most wonderful example ever of submission to the sovereign will of God that has ever been known in history. Complete and perfect submission. But had he failed, 
which was not possible. Had he failed, all would have been lost. We all would have remained in our sins. You and I would have been lost forever. The law not obeyed. The penalty not paid. The wrath of God abiding on us. His obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Seventh thing this means for you. Therefore, believer, the Lord God will not pour out His wrath on you because the Lord God poured out His wrath on His Son in your place. In my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He paid the price. He paid it in full. As our last Adam, our great high priest, in your place He stood, and the judicial wrath of God against believers is spent. Period. Charles Spurgeon. Now I do love that old Calvinistic Baptist. So like a Presbyterian. How loathsome I am in the sight of God, he said. I feel myself only fit to be cast into the lowest hell, and I wonder that God has not long ago cast me there, but I go into Gethsemane. And I peer under the gnarled olive trees, and I see my Savior. Yes, I see him wallowing on the ground in anguish, and hear such groans come from him as never came from human breast before. I look upon the earth and see it red with his blood, while his face is smeared with gory sweat. And I say to myself, My God, my Savior, what aileth thee? I hear him reply, I am suffering for thy sin. And then I take comfort. For while I fain would have spared my Lord such anguish, now that the anguish is over, I can understand how Jehovah can spare me because he smote his son in my stead. It is amazing how in all of this Jesus is thinking of others. He says to his disciples, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. He loves them. He's thinking of them all the while, even though his own soul is burdened down into the very dust with the thought, I'm about to go to the cross and bear the sins of all of God's people through all of the ages and pay the price. So at the end of the text, he essentially says, sleep on now. Too late for you to join with me in prayer now. Perhaps he even sees the tortures come, torches coming up the Kidron Valley. And we'll move on in Matthew, selectively. But we'll move on. You'll read on. And what do we find? Jesus will go on. He will go on all the way to the cross for you. He will go on 
all alone.